Good morning. A guilty verdict in a South Carolina murder trial. Blinken meets Lavrov. An Israeli cabinet member threatens violence. A Palestinian peace activist is assaulted on the streets of Hebron. And Daniel Ellsberg says goodbye. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday morning, March 3rd, 2023. South Carolina attorney Alex Murdaugh was convicted of murder Thursday in the shooting deaths of his wife and son. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before finding Murdaugh guilty of two counts of murder, culminating a six-week trial that pulled back the curtain on a powerful Southern family with tales of greed, privilege, and addiction. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch, defendant, indictment for murder, guilty verdict, signed by the forelady, 3-2-23. The state versus Richard Alexander Murdoch, defendant, indictment for murder, verdict, guilty, signed by the forelady, date 3-2 of 23. Murdoch, 54, faces 30 years to life in prison without parole for each murder charge. Prosecutors didn't have the weapons used to kill the Murdoch's or other direct evidence like confessions or blood spatter, but they did find a video on the son's cell phone that showed voices that put the lie to several statements made by Murdoch to police investigating the murders. In international news, the group of 20 meeting in Delhi, India, ended without agreement to end the Ukraine war as China joined Russia in refusing to support a demand for Moscow to cease hostilities. On Thursday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken briefly met Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. It was the first high-level meeting between Russia and America since before the war began. Lavrov had accused the West of hypocrisy in a speech earlier in the day because he said, they had been pumping Ukraine full of weapons for years. Blinken had this to say about the meeting later in the day. I spoke briefly with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, on the margins of our G20 meeting today. I told the Foreign Minister uh, what I and so many others said last week at the United Nations and what so many G20 Foreign Ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. President Zelensky has put forward a 10-point plan for a just and durable peace. The United States stand ready to support Ukraine through diplomacy to end the war on this basis. President Putin, however, has demonstrated zero interest in engaging, saying there's nothing to even talk about unless and until Ukraine accepts, and I quote, the new territorial realities, while doubling down on his brutalization of Ukraine. Independent of what Russia does, we showed here in Delhi what we will do. Deliver results on the problems most affecting our people's lives. In related news, Washington has been accusing China of considering providing weapons to Russia for use in the war. Beijing has denied the allegation, but Secretary of State Blinken reiterated the accusation during a press conference in Delhi. Were China to engage in material, lethal support for Russia's aggression, war were to engage in the systematic evasion of sanctions uh, to help Russia, that would be a serious problem for, uh, for our countries. When I saw uh, senior foreign policy official Wang Yi uh, on the margins of the Munich uh, meetings just a week or so ago, I raised with him our very real concern that, based on information we have, China is considering supplying lethal military assistance to Russia. We've not seen it do that yet. But we've seen it considering that proposition. And what I shared with him again 
uh, was that this would be a serious problem for us in our relationship with China. And I made clear that there would be consequences for engaging in those actions. Uh, so I'm not going to detail uh, what they would be, but of course we have sanctions authorities uh, of, of various kinds. That would certainly be one of the things that we and others would look at. And I say others because this concern that China is considering providing lethal military assistance to, to Russia, this is a shared concern. And many other partners uh, have uh, raised this, and not just raised this with us, it's my understanding, have raised it directly with China, including here today in Delhi. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. One of the subjects Blinken mentioned in the 10-minute meeting with Lavrov was that Russia would release imprisoned American Paul Whelan, who the Kremlin has accused of spying. And United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres denounced inflammatory rhetoric on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict this week. He was referring to comments by Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, who said the Palestinian village of Huara needs to be wiped out, adding, I think the state of Israel should do it. The comments by the far-right cabinet minister were also denounced in Washington by State Department spokesperson Ned Price. I want to be very clear about this. Uh, these comments were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. We condemn, as we have consistently, terrorism and extremism in all of its forms. And we continue to urge that there be equal measures of accountability for extremist actions, regardless of the background of the perpetrators uh, or the victims. We've already noted uh, our concern, as I did just a moment ago, about the wide-scale indiscriminate violence by settlers uh, against Palestinian civilians in this very town, in Huara, that led to the death of one Palestinian man, uh, more than 300 residents injured, four seriously, uh, and the torching of an estimated uh, of numerous Palestinian homes and cars. Uh, it is imperative, in some ways now more than ever, uh, that Israelis and Palestinians work together, again, to de-escalate these tensions and to restore the calm uh, that both Israelis and Palestinians deserve. And that's State Department spokesperson, Ned Price. Meanwhile, a human rights defender recognized by the United Nations, Issa Amro, says Israel's finance minister is a fascist with Palestinians in the crosshairs. In an interview with the news, Amro was reached at his home in the West Bank town of Hebron, where he says death threats and assaults against Palestinian activists like himself are becoming more common. I was working with American journalists, showing him the closed shops, closed markets, closed streets, the fence which was installed to protect Palestinian homes, Palestinian shopkeepers, Palestinian customers from Israeli settlers, showing him the segregation, the separation, and the apartheid policies of the Israeli government in my own hometown, Hebron. The Israeli soldiers, they didn't like that I was walking in the graveyard and the American journalist was walking on the main road. The American journalist was walking in the main road because he was under the Israeli civilian law. I was walking on the graveyard because I am under the Israeli military law and I'm not allowed to walk on the main street. He didn't want me to talk to the journalist, so I just told the journalist, 
let's continue. We meet in the meeting point where I'm allowed and he's allowed. But the soldier even didn't like that. He tried to force photographer to delete the video of the conversation and delete the video of the showing how we walked in two different places. He tried to force me to delete the video by that by the military law I am allowed to film. Then the soldier dragged me from my neck, detained me and forced me to sit, intimidated me, pushed the gun to my chest, and then suddenly he you know, he caught me from my throat, uh, pressed on my throat and I almost lost oxygen and threw me to the ground hit me, kicked me, and he wanted to do more, but the presence of the camera saved me. Then I didn't get any medical treatment from the army or from the police, from an Israeli ambulance. The Israeli national security minister backed up the soldier and he said that the soldier did the right thing to me. That was really severe, and it was for me a kind of trauma and I was injured in my hand, in my arm, in my leg, in my back, and I had to stay in bed for a few days. The American journalist who's with you, did anything occur to him? No, nothing happened to him. The attack was on me. The American journalist was shocked from what he saw. And this happened when? It happened on February 13th. February 13th of this year? Yes. Just a couple of weeks ago? Yes. There was another incident that happened earlier? Yes, today. Yes, today the Israeli settlers protested outside my house. They wanted to break in. They put the Israeli flags on my wall, chanting racism and, you know, chanting something bad about me, about my people. Last week I was attacked by settlers. They threw stones at me. I see a kind of huge escalation from the Israeli settlers on us, on the Palestinians in general. Why are they targeting you? Because I'm a human rights defender, and I document their violence and expose them. I have a voice in the the American and British and European media. On the other hand, it's not only me. The settlers are very violent. majority of Palestinians are suffering from their violence and from their brutality. Why they do it? Because they can with impunity. But was there a proximate cause of why they went to you yesterday? Did they see you give an interview like this? They follow my Twitter and they follow my speeches to international media. They don't like that. They don't want that. They see visitors from Israel, from the U.S., from all over the world. They come and visit me in my house. I speak to them about the Israeli occupation and apartheid. So they don't want that. They want to shut off Palestinian voices and they don't want the Palestinians to speak about the Israeli occupation, apartheid and settler violence. And who are these Israelis? Unfortunately, now the government is very right-wing and they are described by many Israelis as a fascist ministers. The spokesperson for the Secretary of State press conference today where he addressed that And he said the United States condemns that kind of language, but of course they always balance it. Oh, of course the other side says things as well, so we wish both sides would come together. But he made an unusual reference to this today. The apartheid, we can't make two parties equal when an Israeli minister is calling to a genocide to Palestinians. What Palestinians did to say that 
about Palestinian village to be erased completely from the map by an Israeli uh, official. Is this okay? This one and the other hand, this minister, he's a fascist. He should be accountable. He should be banned from coming to the U.S. and he should be taken to the ICC for calling to settler violence. Two days ago, hundreds of houses, shops, cars, Palestinian properties were burned in this village because of his incitement. So innocent civilians paid high price for this kind of criticism and this kind of extremism. We've seen the pictures and it's pretty horrendous and even more horrendous is the statements that once translated to me from the Hebrew or whichever language uh, seem to show a callousness among the uh, settlers who did these deeds. What they did is not new. In Hebrew in 2008, I witnessed the same pogrom, which was described by Olmert, a former Israeli prime minister, that it's pogrom without any accountability for the Israeli settlers, violent settlers. The Israeli settlers are not accountable for their violence. It's the opposite of Palestinian violence. Violence people who are accountable by a military law, but the Israeli settlers are not accountable. Few settlers were arrested and they were released on the same day to their homes. There is no accountability. A Palestinian was killed by the settlers' violence, and no one settler was accused of killing him. Palestinians lost their shops without any kind of compensation. So the videos of the attack was severe, was hard on our emotions and our kids and our women and everybody. It's not easy. And unfortunately, whenever they talk about settler violence, everybody puts in Palestinian, blaming Palestinians. It's blaming the victim all the time. It's really not acceptable at all that to keep ignoring that the reality is that Israel is occupying the Palestinian territories and trying to demolish their homes, confiscate their land, uh, transfer them from their cities, and then they talk about Palestinian violence. Palestinian violence is not acceptable, and all type of violence are not acceptable, but the reality that Israel is occupying Palestinian territory, demolishing the houses, confiscating the Palestinian land and make and controlling the Palestinians against their will. You have soldiers going into the West Bank and killing and engaging in firefights with Palestinian fighters. It seems to be their idea that if they're tough, if they use like a Donald Trump style strategy, this will control the Palestinian people in the West Bank. What do you think is going to happen with this government? The current government is motivated by Trump government. Their hero is Trump, and they are doing much more than him toward Palestinians because in, in the U.S., Trump didn't manage to do that much damage because of the strength of the American democracy and the American establishment. But in Palestine, this extremist, fascist government, they are smashing the Palestinians and using a huge amount of violence toward Palestinians because we are under Israeli military law without any basic human rights and no one cares about the Palestinians and even inciting to burn cities, to burn villages, to transfer Palestinians to annex West Bank to Israel. It's a really hard situation and we are going to get into a violent circle and we are reaching the no solution point and no return point. That is very scary. 
I'm afraid about my life. I'm afraid about my people's life. And I think the situation is going to get much, much worse than before. We call the American administration now to intervene directly and to cut the military aid to Israel because it's used to make our life harder and harder. And it's not to protect Israel. It's in the contrary. It's about expanding the settlements and expanding Israeli military outposts and making the life of Palestinians much, much harder. I call my American friends to call their government to act according to principles and the morals of the American people, which they all the time talk to everybody in the world, principles of democracy, principles of freedom, principles of justice, and principles of equality, which Palestinians unfortunately don't have at all these days. Human rights defender Issa Amro. Israeli occupation forces established a closed military zone around Amro's house last October, a day after Amro sought to file a police complaint against Israeli settler violence. And finally, in sad news, whistleblower government researcher and peace activist Daniel Ellsberg, most famous for leaking the Pentagon Papers' secret history of the Vietnam War in the summer of 1971, announced Thursday he had inoperable pancreatic cancer and has been given three to six months to live. That hasn't stopped the loquacious researcher who photocopied thousands of pages of secret government documents that showed the United States had lied to the American public about the objectives of the war. More than 58,000 U.S. troops died over the course of the decades-long war. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Vietnamese also died. Ellsberg has also been a vociferous advocate of whistleblowers like imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The News has conducted at least seven interviews with Daniel Ellsberg since about 2018. In this interview, he discusses former President Richard Nixon and nuclear war. The doomsday clock stands at two minutes before midnight. This symbolic clock maintained by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists signifies the level of nuclear threat to humanity. It's the closest the clock has been to midnight since 1953 during the Cold War. Today, nine countries possess more than 14,000 nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia hold the vast majority of these weapons and keep some 1,800 ready to launch within minutes. It's believed the use of only 100 of these weapons against cities could lead to global cooling, affecting agricultural production and food supply. A conference to build, uh, to build for a new Ban the Bomb movement is scheduled for Sunday, April 14th at the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark. It'll also be live-streamed. The two keynote speakers are Daniel Ellsberg, the author best known for leaking the Pentagon Papers, and Robert J. Lifton, who has written about the psychological effects of looming nuclear doomsday. Daniel Ellsberg spoke with WBAI on Wednesday. He says the current strategy called mutually assured destruction or MAD is an existential threat to all humanity. Any deliberate attack like that against the other superpower would almost surely destroy nearly everyone on earth. The price of achieving that peace, that degree of peace, in that fashion has been the continuous operation, the first, the buildup, the deployment, the production, the design, and the buildup of forces that were capable of destroying life on earth. And second, uh, having those on a kind of alert, a hair trigger alert, that allows the possibility that it will go off by accident. In other words, we live, on, in effect, on a precipice, or you could think on the slopes of a volcano, or think of living in 
New Orleans, for example, where it was well known that a Category 3, 4, 5 hurricane, when, when if it ever occurred, which was likely eventually, would inundate New Orleans. So in any given year, so far so good. Uh, they live from year to year, and then the hurricane came along. A hurricane like that, except uh, vastly larger, a thousand, many more than a thousand times, that could happen accidentally either as a result of a false alarm of the kind I've described or uh, escalation from a limited war that got started. Nowadays, you could imagine Russians in the U.S. fighting over Ukraine, for example, or possibly the Baltic states or conceivably in Syria. And any such conflict would have the capability of setting off these hair trigger forces. So could we have had peace without the existence of systems like that that could destroy life on Earth? Virt virtually certainly, yes. There was no excuse. You have worked with presidents. I mean, you worked with, as, as uh, I remember him well, uh, Richard Nixon. He was a president who... Uh, would uh, make anybody, uh, you know, chill anybody's blood. And uh, he was definitely a real politics sort of guy, right? I Nixon was not less different from Trump. He was not less racist than Trump, uh, not less aggressive than Trump in many ways, but he kept it to himself. He kept it secret. He was good at keeping secrets and good at lying. And he convinced people that he had not... He concealed from them, to put it that way, that he had, in fact, made nuclear threats uh, imminently to North Vietnam. And I think he was serious about that. That was not a bluff. And the fact was that there was a resistance to Vietnam at that time called the moratorium, where people left work uh, in a weekday. Two million of them on October 15th, 1969, which was just weeks before his threats expired on uh, North Vietnam. He planned to carry them out on November 3rd. Now, hardly anybody knew of that at the time. It was very secret. People didn't talk about it. So it was only years later we realized that those people marching in the streets had actually been preventing nuclear war. And that, that is the truth. To say that is to say, in my opinion, that Donald Trump doesn't make the world more dangerous. He makes the danger a little more blatant and not necessarily greater than before. Uh, the difference is that the kinds of things Nixon would say privately, although he was taping himself, but he would say privately to his associates that were very anti-Semitic, anti-black, uh, very bigoted. Privately, and uh, Trump says that same sort of thing openly and appears more impulsive uh, openly. So people are more aware of the danger. I would say the danger isn't necessarily greater now than it's been at various times in the past, uh, but it's continuing. It's not getting less, and that's basically intolerable. To be rebuilding these systems now uh, is uh, unforgivable at the cost of. $1.7 trillion to rebuild them, and, uh, when in fact it would be worth money on that scale to get rid of most of them. What did you think of your depiction in the movie about the Washington Post? <laughs> well, I was played by a very good actor, uh, Matthew Reese, who happens to look quite a bit the way I did at the time, only better.
So that's good. I can't ask for more. Uh, some of the scenes involving me were the one with me and McNamara, for example, were taken word for word from my book, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, where uh, <laughs> McNamara had just told me that the situation in Vietnam was much worse this year, 1966, than the year before. And then minutes later, literally, I was telling a, uh, we, were, we were just landing, uh, telling a press conference on the ground that we were making great progress in every dimension. I was uh, rather shocked by that at the time, but that scene in the movie is very accurate. What makes politicians lie like that when it really doesn't seem to be to their benefit or the country's benefit? To keep his job under Johnson. He, by that time, understood that the war was thoroughly stalemated uh, at best. That's what he said to me on the plane. He'd been saying that for roughly a year, but he wanted to be Secretary of Defense, in part, not entirely for selfish reasons. He was helping Johnson keep the Joint Chiefs from using nuclear weapons against Vietnam. Good. And he felt that he alone was the man to do that. But at the same time, uh, he did like the power and the prestige and the influence of being Secretary of Defense. And if he'd said to Johnson, what he said to me, President Johnson, uh, or put it another way, if he'd said it publicly, uh, he would have been fired, as he was basically one year later when he did say to Johnson privately that we should negotiate and get out. That was in 67. Well, the war had eight years to go. So I wish he had done that then. But frankly, very, very, very few officials do uh tell the truth, even to their bosses, certainly to the public, at the cost of their jobs. You just don't see that. Johnson wanted, didn't want to lose the war, is that it? He knew he couldn't win the war except for brief, intoxicated moments, you might say. But uh, he didn't want to lose it. And McNamara did his job, kept his job, kept him from losing it at the cost of 58,000 American lives and millions of Vietnamese. Daniel Ellsberg is the author of numerous books. His most recent is The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, recounting his days working on nuclear war fighting plans for the Pentagon. A conference to build a new Ban the Bomb movement is scheduled for Sunday, April 14th at the New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark. It will also be live-streamed. Godspeed, Daniel Ellsberg. And that's the news for Friday morning, March 3rd, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can always hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>